Well, having said it, it's uh, perhaps a difficult time to start a series on Habakkuk. I'm going to uh, kind of take things a step down further because to get us started, I want to consider two incredibly discouraging things, or at least incredibly discouraging things as I look out on the world. And the first is the state of the church. And the second is the state of the world that we live in. And now, on the one hand, as we say in England, the church is rubbish. Uh, Worse than that, all too often, uh, it is corrupt and sinful. Uh, Add to that the rising wickedness in the wider world. Uh, Just put these things together, and it just seems like you're faced with an incredibly challenging scenario. Uh, We are called to spread the love of Jesus Christ, uh, and yet it feels, if you will, like we're a tiny ant up against a mighty elephant. In fact, compared to the present situation, David's chance of beating Goliath seemed like pretty good odds. Uh, Because we have a corrupt church, uh, a church filled with so much sin and weakness, in a world which appears to have a mounting hostility toward Christianity. Uh, The corrupt church in a wicked world, is it just me or is that truly a discouraging situation? Uh, We can feel that in a personal way as well. I mean, what a context in which to raise a family. Uh, What a context to be starting out in life as a young person or as a student seeking to follow Christ. Uh, It's no wonder that so many people give up. Uh, Why young people abandon the church, partly because of the state of the church itself, but also because of the allure of the world around us. I mean, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, And if instead we want to fight to remain faithful, it it can be tempting to just pull up the drawbridge and pray for Jesus to return. Uh, At the very very, uh, basic level, as we seek to remain faithful, we can find ourselves questioning God. Now, what is God doing? Is he really building his church as he promised to do? Uh, And if so, why is it that he seems to let the sins of his church go unchecked? And why doesn't he do something about uh, all of the rampant evil that seems to be infiltrating the church from the world? And if these are questions ever on your mind and heart, then we have to say this sermon series is for you. Uh, We're going to be spending the next four weeks, as I said, in in Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk, 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 it's up to you. And uh, maybe you've never read it before or heard it before even, and certainly you don't know how to say it. Uh, It's nestled in there towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet, we read in verse 1. Uh, And in fact, he faced very similar reality to the ones that I just expressed. Uh, uh, Yet as a prophet, he had the audacity to actually directly address God with these questions. And so the book takes the form of a Q&A with God. And this morning, we're going to look at Habakkuk's first question and God's first answer. And as we do, we're going to face those two discouraging things head on, the corruption of the church and the wickedness of the world. But rather than leaving us discouraged, Habakkuk changes the script. Uh, He brings these uh, two things together in a way that perhaps is unexpected, but which ultimately should encourage us. And so firstly, we'll look at uh, Habakkuk's first question. Uh, It's there in verses 2 through 4. And here is the question. Does God care about corruption in the church? Uh, Does God care about corruption in the church? And then secondly, we're going to look at God's answer in verses 5 through 11. Uh, Does God care? Well, yes, he does. And what is he going to do about it? Well, he's going to do something, something quite surprising. God is going to use the wicked world to purify his people. God is going to use the wicked world to purify his people. 
Does God care about corruption in the church? Yes, and he plans to use the wicked world to deal with it. And now that might sound strange, so let's, uh, let me explain. Uh, firstly, here is the ultimate question for Habakkuk. Does God care about corruption in his church? Uh, in other words, Habakkuk comes to God and he asks, are you moved by what is going on? Uh, there is so much evil uh, in the church. I see it and I'm grieved by it. But what about you, God? Uh, surely you see this too. Uh, do you really care at all? And now maybe this is how you feel. It it could be a philosophical question for you. This is something that often comes up. If God is good, why does he allow so much evil in the world? Uh, Why does it go unchecked? Uh, But this can also be a very personal question, can't it? Uh, Why is God allowing this evil in my life? Uh, Or or why is he allowing such pain in the life of someone that I love? And listen, this is one of the things I love about the word of God. It never ignores such a question. It never ignores the sense of outrage we may feel. It doesn't shy away from raising such a difficult question. Uh, We find this in the Psalms, especially if you read through them. We find a a repeated refrain that we see here in Habakkuk 1. Uh, How long, O Lord? That's so often what God's people say. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Or in the words of Habakkuk 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Habakkuk isn't really setting God a timer, is he? No, he's expressing his frustration with God. How long will it take for you to intervene? God, why don't you do something about this? How long will it take before you do something about the evil in this nation? That's Habakkuk's concern. And to understand that, we have to know something about the situation that Habakkuk faced. And if you will, the clues are in the text, because he uses various words to describe this evil. In verse 3, he describes it as iniquity and wrong. Now, iniquity really means injustice. He's referring to unjust treatment. People are being abused. People are being exploited. By wrong, he means the distress that they face as a result. And then there are, there are destruction and violence. In other words, there are, this certainly wasn't a culture of mutual respect. Instead, people were tearing one another apart. They were being verbally, emotionally, even physically violent. There was strife and contention. On the one level, that simply could refer to discord or disunity. Perhaps his society, like our own, was, was deeply polarized. And yet also, these are legal words suggesting that his society was also highly litigious. People were always taking each other to court. In fact, based on what we read in verse 4, it seems this is what was going on. Uh, Powerful people were exploiting the legal system. Uh, One commentator put it so well, I'm going to quote his words. Uh, These words, strife and contention... Uh, They insinuate that wrongdoers use the law so as to wrong other people who are less adept at working the system. Uh, They use the law so as to wrong other people who are less adept at working the system. And now the author goes on. It seems that the usual rule holds that the powerful and clever people in the community are themselves heavily involved in the wrongdoing in fraud and in violence. And now the author summarizes Habakkuk's situation like this. Community life is totally broken down. And that is what concerns Habakkuk so much. The fabric of his society was in tatters. 
And now let me ask you, does any of that sound familiar to you? I mean, read the papers, watch TV, read the news online, or, or better yet, spend a few moments on social media. In fact, you might find it depends on which paper or channel or website you read, because no doubt the news that you're reading is, is actually attacking the news that comes from the other. And even when they aren't doing that, the news is mostly discouraging, isn't it? I mean, as I read these words in Habakkuk, it's hard not to uh, remember that situation captured most recently in the uh, conviction of uh, that lawyer from South Carolina, um, Alex Murdow. Uh, did you follow the story at all? Here we had an upstanding uh, South Carolina attorney, a pillar of his community, uh, coming from a long legal family, uh, using his power, leveraging the system for financial gain, ultimately found guilty of murdering his own family. Uh, iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, and contention. Uh, could these words not have been written yesterday? Uh, isn't this what we see all around us? every day. Uh, and are you grieved by this? In fact, does it mean you sometimes avoid uh, watching the news? Uh, do you ever find yourself asking God, how long do you care about this? Are you going to do something about the death spiral in our society? Uh, and yet the problem is, before we point the finger, we have to ask, where is all of this taking place? For Habakkuk, what evil and corruption is he actually referring to? And because we have to remember where he lived, uh, we have to remember all of this isn't out in the world. No, all of this is going on in the nation of Judah. Uh, this is happening amongst God's own people in God's own place. And I think when we recognize this, it takes it to a whole new level. You see, Habakkuk is grieved not so much by the corruption in the world, but actually the corruption in the church. In fact, this is the big issue. As we read in verse 4, he says there that the law is paralyzed. That word law doesn't just refer to the law in general. It's the word Torah. It refers to God's law, God's righteous word, his covenant with his own people. We learn here that the word of God is being abused. It's being paralyzed, he says. In what sense? Well, it's being exploited by wicked, powerful people. And read the rest of the prophets and you'll see this is exactly what was going on. This was one of the big problems. It wasn't just the sin of the people in the pews, we could say. No, it was the prophets, the priests, the so-called shepherds of Israel. And they were the ones abusing and exploiting God's people. And listen, if, if what we read in Habakkuk resonates with what we see in the wider world, we have to admit, uh, sadly, that we actually see it also resonates today with what goes on within the church. Over the last couple of years, a committee of our own denomination, the PCA, produced a study report. Uh, the topic of that report, domestic abuse and sexual assault, uh, specifically within the church. Uh, now, that report is very sad and sobering reading. Uh, in fact, uh, I encourage you to read it, but to do so with uh, a certain amount of caution and soberness. In fact, one of you uh, actually helped produce that report for which uh, we as a church and a denomination are incredibly grateful. Uh, but what this report demonstrates is this. Uh, a lot of uh, what took place in Habakkuk's time continues today amongst God's people. In fact, the report is laced with very sobering, devastating case studies. Uh, demonstrating injustice and wrong, destruction and violence, strife and contention. Now, all too often, the law, God's word, was paralyzed in the situations described. Why? Because the wicked surround the righteous. Uh, 
Rather than supporting the sheep, leaders close ranks and support their abusers. Often the very leaders God provides not only fail to deal with the issues in the church, but all too often are actually the perpetrators of evil. And we have to say, don't we, none of us, myself included, our leadership included, is, is beyond engaging or being complicit in these things. Uh, the report highlights um, how the abuse of authority is always a threat. And listen, this is just the PCA. We're small fry. What about the two biggest denominations in the country, the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention? Uh, there is corruption in the Church of Christ, is there not? In fact, there is sin everywhere. Uh, both in the pews and also in the leadership. Uh, it's true on an interpersonal level, within Christian families, within churches, within ministries. Uh, by and large, the visible church today has lost its way. It is corrupt. Uh, there is theological corruption. Uh, there is moral corruption. There is ethical corruption. Uh, there is spiritual, emotional, even sexual abuse. There is passivity, there is self-protection, there is division, dissension, polarization, hostility. I mean, let's be honest, is the church really any better than the world? Well, maybe sometimes it is, maybe, maybe it's slightly better. But do we reflect God in his perfect love, his perfect holiness? I mean, do I really even need to answer that question? And yet God has called us as his church to be his witnesses in the world, just as he set Israel to be, to be a city on the hill, a representative of his grace. And so can you understand why Habakkuk is disturbed by this? God, do you care? Do you care about the sin in the church? Now we could say, does God care about his reputation at all? I mean, he's put his name on these people, on us. You see, the big problem here isn't the situation itself alone. No, it's God's response, or maybe we could say the lack thereof. Now listen to what Habakkuk writes in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you do not hear? Or cry violence and you do not save? <clears throat> why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? You see, it's God's failure to act that's the problem for him. It's the fact that God is passive, that he seems actually in that sense to be complicit in what is going on. And this is the big problem for Habakkuk, and maybe it's a problem for you as you sit here today. You're grieved because of the way that you have been hurt, or maybe you're grieved because of what has been suffered by other people. And so let me apply this to you in a slightly unusual way, if that's the case. Uh, let me suggest this. If that is how you feel, you need to complain what? I mean, I thought we were meant to do everything without grumbling and complaining. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2. And in one sense, yes, we shouldn't just be complaining to one another. That's not what I mean. What I'm suggesting is this. We need to complain in this way. We need to bring our complaints, first of all, directly to God himself. Go straight to the top, if you will. In fact, I believe that's what Habakkuk invites you to do. He even gives you the words to do it. Uh, he even gives you these words that you can speak to God. Uh, how long, how long, O oh Lord, do I have to say these things? Will you do nothing? Why do you stand there idly looking upon wrong? And you see, here is the danger. Uh, when we're grieved by the state of the church especially, uh, we can so easily allow that fact to drive us from God. And yet what we see here is it should drive us to him, should it not? I mean, God knows what we feel already, doesn't he? 
And so why not bring the way that we feel to him? After all, God is big enough to handle your complaints. Uh, He isn't surprised by what you might say to him. And so, yes, you should approach him with reverence, with respect. Uh, But if you're confused, if you want to know what God is doing, here is a suggestion. Go to him and ask him. And that is what Habakkuk does. And and I have to say, I'm so glad he does. Because as he asks this question, does God really care about corruption in the church? God then gives him an answer. And that's what we turn to in verses 5 through 11. Because it's as if he's asking on our behalf, isn't it? He's asking, God, do you care? And the answer is, yes, God does care. And listen, we learn here that God is going to do something about it. And now, to be fair, his answer is shocking. It's surprising. In fact, God himself tells us, this is something you wouldn't believe, even if I told you. You see, God's answer raises as many questions as it answers. We're going to see that next week. Uh, But here it is for now. How will God prove that he cares about corruption in the church? Well, here's our second point. God will use the wicked world to purify his people. Uh, God will use the wicked world to purify his people. Uh, God will intervene. Uh, He will act to root out his people's sin. He will deal with the injustice, the wrong, the violence within his nation. Uh, Now, of course, God will do this at the end of time. Hopefully, we all understand that. Everyone will have to stand before God. Everyone will face his final judgment. And yet what I'm talking about, what God says here, points to more than that. It points to something in the here and now, something that we often experience in this life. Even now, God reassures us that he will bring a measure of justice. I mean, let's get some context. Hopefully this will help. Um, At the time of Habakkuk, as he writes, we need to understand God had patiently endured Judah's sin for a very, very long time. From the time he brought his people out of Egypt, it had been clear, I think, things weren't right. They complained and complained again and again, not in the good way I suggested, but rather in in a very bad way. And even after 40 years in the wilderness, when they entered the land, they did not honor God. I know for years, for decades, the same evil, the same violence had been going on. Rampant idolatry, people turning away from God, uh, pervasive injustice, people failing to love and honor their neighbor. And all the way through, God had sent them prophets again and again and again. People like Elijah and Elisha, people like Isaiah. As we've already said, God was and is so incredibly patient with his people. And so he kept calling out to them, offering them forgiveness, calling them back in repentance. But they didn't turn back. And so what did God do? Well, he told them he would judge them for their sin. And this is the astonishing thing. This is what it's perhaps hard to believe. In verse 6, he tells us how. How is he going to do this? Well, he's going to raise up an even more violent and sinful nation against them. Look down at verse 6 with me. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Now, the Chaldeans is another name for the nation of Babylon. And now, if you want to know what the Babylonians were like, consider this. The Babylonians did eventually capture Jerusalem, and what did they do? I'm I'm sorry for the graphic details that I'm about to share, but they took the king of Israel, and they slayed his entire family in front of him, and then to make sure it was the last thing that he saw, they plucked his eyes out. Now, this is the kind of thing they did wherever they went. And they went everywhere. And they went there fast. 
Look at verse 6 with me again and and see how they're described. Uh, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the land to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And then we get this comparison between them and, and the most fast and fierce animals around. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And now history tells us this description is fair and true. Before the Babylonians came, the, uh, the Assyrian Empire holds sway at the time. And now the Assyrians were a powerful force who at one point ruled the regions uh, from Babylonia all the way down uh, to Egypt in the south. Uh, in 722 BC, the Assyrians had exiled the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, but now God would raise up an even more powerful and violent forth, force. In fact, in the space of around 15 years, Babylon would completely wipe out Assyria. Uh, Bitter and hazy, swift to to devour. Uh, What is more, their success went to their heads. Uh, Verse 11 really drives home this point, doesn't it? Uh, In verse 11 we read, Then they swept by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Their own might is their God. Basically, they worship themselves. And, and in one sense, we have to say from a political standpoint, why not? They were like the political Muhammad Ali. Every match was a knockout. They floored everyone. No one could defeat them. And yet, this is the amazing thing. This is God's message to Habakkuk. Do you want to know how much I care about the violence in the land? Do you want to know how much I'm moved by the corruption that goes on amongst my people. Well, don't worry, Habakkuk, I I plan to act. I'm going to send an even more wicked, brutal, arrogant nation against them, a people called Babylon. And now immediately that raises uh, a few questions, doesn't it? Or at least it should. And thankfully, Habakkuk is going to ask and answer those questions next week. Uh, But for now, consider this. Consider how God uses the wicked world to address the sins of his people. Uh, This is what he did for Judah. Having patiently borne with them for so long, his arm came eventually crashing down and and the instrument in God's hand was this horrible people. And I suppose the question to ask is, does God do the same thing today? I mean, let's be honest, this is the Old Testament. This was written in a unique time in history. Can we say that a similar thing might happen today? Well, I think that yes, yes we can. In some sense, in some ways, at many times, this continues. In fact, there is a principle here, I think, and here it is. One of the the ways that, one of the things God continues to do to deal with his church is to use the world to purify his people. One of the things God continues to do is to deal with our sins in real and living ways. Uh, And actually, it's a very surprising thing, but but this is one of the things God does. He judges the church using the wicked world. In fact, if you don't believe me, let's consider a few examples in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 13, we discover something about the government. Uh, None of us really uh, love this uh, passage, especially when uh, the person... uh, 
pointing to it is an Englishman. In Romans 13, we discover that the the government is referred to as an agent of God's wrath. Uh, That is, uh, God uses uh, the government to to punish sin and wickedness. Uh, Now, the government being talked about in Romans chapter 13 is the government of Rome, uh, possibly the Emperor Nero, famous for his assault on Christians. Apparently, when he lacked light at his dinner parties, he would just dip a few Christians in tar and set them alight. But he, even he, could be used by God to judge sin. And in fact, let me give you another, perhaps even more clear example. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Now, in this passage, Peter is addressing the fact that Christians are suffering. Uh, He describes the way that they're about to face intense uh, persecution, intense opposition. Uh, In fact, in verse 12 uh, of chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, we read this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Uh, He then goes on to call them to rejoice, to rejoice insofar as they're sharing in Christ's sufferings. And what kind of suffering will they face? Well, there in verse 14, if you are insulted, For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I wonder if that's what you consider the spirit-filled life to look like. These Christians are being persecuted, they're being insulted, they're being opposed. So how does Peter interpret this reality? Does he get mad at their persecutors? Does he start a petition and appeal for freedom of religion as a universal human right? No, in fact, this is all God's work, he says. Really? Yes. He says it in verse 17. He says this, for it is time to judgment to begin. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, I think there's only really one way to make sense of what Peter says here. Uh, that even now in this, in this time, God is using uh, this wicked world. Even now, as as people are persecuted as Christians, even now, God is at work. And what is he doing? Why does he allow such wickedness in the world? Well, here is the answer. God is purifying his people. In fact, this is how he shows his care for his church today. He allows bad things to happen in order to purify her, to cleanse her, renewing her for good works. I mean, what an amazing thought. Maybe, maybe this isn't connecting for you here, but let's just think about how this addresses those two things that I said at the start. Um, here are two things that are incredibly discouraging when you think about them. There is the state of the church itself, so much compromise, so much corruption. And then there is the state of the world, opposition to Christianity on the rise. Many people quite honestly hate Christianity. Rather than being open to the gospel, they see it as an existential threat. What could be more discouraging than that? A weak church, a sinful church, engaged in reaching an increasingly godless, hostile world. And yet, hang on, what if we, what if we switch that up a little bit? What if we look at it a different way? Perhaps the way that's presented to us here in Habakkuk. How does he relate these two things? God cares about the corruption in the church, and, and how does he show that care? Well, he actually uses wicked, uh, the wickedness of the world to purify his people. And what I want to suggest is this, that God may well be doing the same thing today. Uh, just as he raised up the Babylonians then, God is sovereign. Everything is under his control. And so uh, could it not be that God is turning up the heat on us? 
Uh, Could this be the ultimate reason for increased hostility to Christianity? I mean, judgment begins with the household of God. That's what we read, isn't it? And when necessary, God will use the wicked world to purify his people. I mean, consider some of the issues that I've already mentioned, like this whole issue of abuse taking place within the church. Is this not one of the very things that puts people off, that turns people away from the faith? And we have to say, if that is the case, then that is the case for good reason. And how is God, uh, how is God using uh, the world to deal with that? Well, in fact, through that very opposition. It would be great to think that the reason the church has become more serious about dealing with such sins is because we understand these things are wrong. But in truth, it is the response of the world that has been something of a wake-up call for God's people. The world, the culture, even the government is acting to deal with abuse. And, and, And does that not drive us to act as Christian believers? This is just one example, but it can work in so many ways. For example, doesn't the increased opposition to Christianity actually separate the wheat from the chaff amongst God's people? There used to be such a thing as a social Christian. There used to be such a thing as a social advantage for following the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have to say, very thankfully, that is no longer true. The social Christian is a dying breed. Nominal Christianity is, I think, destined to extinction. Uh, What I'm trying to say is this. We're often discouraged because weak Christians are powerless against the onslaught of the world. But but what if we look at that another way? Uh, What if God is using the onslaught of the world to deal with the sins and weaknesses of Christians? Uh, That's actually the pattern that we see here in Habakkuk, is it not? And it's actually what we read in Romans chapter 8. God is working all things together for good. Uh, And what good is Romans 8 talking about? Well, it's that you and I might be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. And what happened to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, here is the amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, Though he was perfect, although he had no corruption at all, God did use a wicked world to judge him. In fact, if anyone could keep compete with the Babylonians for brutality, we have to say it was certainly the Romans. And Jesus was handed over to them to be bruised and beaten and crucified, and he did that for us. He died in our place, bearing in himself the sins of his people. He rescues us once and for all from the wrath that is to come. And having died and been raised, we know this, he is committed to his people. He's committed to purifying her, cleansing her uh, through the washing of water with the word that she might be spotless on the final day standing before him. And so we find he'll do anything to purify us. He'll do anything to to prepare us for himself. And what we learn in Habakkuk is something that surprises us, something perhaps we don't want to hear. Uh, That actually one of the means he uses is the sin of the world, the wickedness of the world. He allows people to slander Christians. He allows people to beat up Christians. He allows governments to bring legislation to oppose the church. In fact, according to Habakkuk 1, he even raises up a brutal empire like the Babylonians. Because this is what is happening in the world today. God is ruling his world and he's doing it for the sake of his church. Now we need to get this right, I think. Sometimes we think the main event is what's happening in the world and yet God has told us that's not true, is it? The big event is that God is gathering a people. And therefore, rather than being discouraged, I suggest that 
we might trust God. Trust that he knows what he's doing. We, we often see, don't we, such corruption in the church, and so often that discourages us. And yet even the opposition the church faces can actually be a mark of God's care and concern. God will use the wicked world even to purify his chosen people. I know that raises all kinds of questions, as we'll see next week. But for now, hopefully what I've left you with is a, is a shift in your perspective. And what an encouragement to know that God can and will use everything. That God does indeed care that he is committed to his people. And therefore, let's thank him now. Let's go to him and let's seek his help. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for these words, words that are challenging, words that may even be confusing. And yet, Lord, we, we thank you that you care. Uh, thank you that you're concerned. Uh, thank you that the things that so grieve us about your church grieve you. And thank you that you're a God who does something about it. And Lord, we thank you that everything that's going on in this world is working together for good. Uh, for your good purpose of glorifying yourself and, and gathering a people. And so we pray that you might fill us with hope and confidence, even as we're distressed. Uh, Lord, we pray that these words might ultimately encourage us and strengthen us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.